morning again. Let me get you to grab your Bibles. Let's go to Matthew chapter 2. We're continuing a series and really coming to the conclusion today of a series we're calling Christmas Unfiltered, kind of taking the filter off of the Christmas story and seeing it how it was so we can experience the impact of, our, of it in our life. And this morning, I want to talk about the message in the gift, the message in the gift. And we're going to look at a few characters in the Christmas narrative that uh, really don't get a lot of attention, but when they do give are given attention, when, when they receive a little bit of acknowledgement, oftentimes we really kind of misunderstand their role and what it is that they are doing in the story, and that is the story of the wise men, all right? The wise men. How many of you have ever heard anything about the three wise men at the birth of Jesus? Anybody raise your hand if that's you, all right? Um, and so first of all, I want to say a couple of things about this. We're going to take the filter off of it. Um, when we talk about the three wise men, we have to first of all acknowledge we don't know that there were three of them. The Bible never says that. The second thing we've got to acknowledge, because by the way, there, there was three gifts given, right? So it could have been 18 of them. There could have been 25, 64, could have been two of them. We don't know. We say three because we were three gifts and we're just making the assumption. The other thing is we really don't know where they're, they're from. We're going to see that in, in a moment in some history uh, Another thing about them I think it's important that, that we uh, understand is that they didn't actually go to the stable and to the manger where Jesus was. How many of you have uh, like a nativity scene at your house and you have the three wise men there giving their gifts? Raise your hand if that's you. All right, you are heretics and I don't know what to say about you. I'm judging you in my heart. No, I'm, I'm kidding because we have those at our house as well. Uh, you know, we might want to take them out of there and just put them in a corner somewhere. But as you jump into the story, you actually find out it was actually maybe two years later before the, the magi, the wise men, uh, actually show up uh, to see Jesus. In fact, in, in the story in Matthew chapter uh, two, they, they come to a house, not a stable, and the word used to describe what they saw when they saw Jesus is a word that means toddler, not necessarily infant. Uh, we also know that they don't really see the star and follow the star until after the birth of Jesus, and so there's a lot of things that we misunderstand about them. Here's another misconception. How many of you have ever heard of the three wise men referred to as the three kings? Anybody heard of that? We really don't know. The Bible doesn't say that they're kings. Most likely there weren't kings. They just worked for kings. And so every Christmas show you've ever been a part of, they come in and they've got their crowns on and they kind of bow before Jesus as kings. That's kind of made up, all right? I'm be honest with you. So I'm bursting some of your bubble in your Christmas image, but we're taking the filter off because I want you to see something. I want you to see the, really the story behind these men and specifically the gift and the gifts that they brought to Jesus. Uh, the idea of, of magi comes from a Greek word, uh, magus, which is a word uh, that, that really is a catch-all phrase that meant uh, men who were teachers, who were priests, physicians, astrologers, um, seers, interpreter of dreams. So there's a lot of different ways that you can uh, describe this, this role, and we don't know exactly where they're from. We do know historically, many historians believe that they have their roots or their uh, lineage goes back to the Babylonian days under King Nebuchadnezzar. You see this uh, in the Old Testament that, that Nebuchadnezzar had his wise men. They were seers and they were dream interpreters. You remember the story, uh, Daniel is there. He is held captive by Nebuchadnezzar and now uh, he's there in Babylon and he had a dream, Nebuchadnezzar did, and uh, he called his wise men, his magi in, 
um, to interpret the dream and they couldn't. Remember the story? And then Daniel steps up and he is able to interpret the dream. And what happens in the story is that Daniel is elevated as the chief magi or the chief wise man and who led these people. And uh, many scholars believe that a lot of the teaching that you see here of, of the, the, the men who show up to see Jesus in the story, that much of their understanding of the prophecies about the Messiah coming would have had their roots in Daniel, as Daniel would have taught the word of God. And he prophesied in Daniel chapter seven that, that the son of man was gonna come and rule. And in chapter nine about the, that God was gonna send the prince to come and rule over his people. And so it could be that these men have been educated from that Babylonian region, from the remnants of Daniel, uh, where they would have learned a little bit about the scripture. But here's what we do know. These men are not a part of the covenant community of God. So they're, they're outside the Jewish community and that they have come because they believe that the scriptures were fulfilled and that Jesus was the long-awaited king. And I, this says a lot for us, and it's not even the heart of the message, but it says a lot to us in this room. This, this, this picture of these men coming and seeing Jesus reminds us that Jesus did not come for just a small sect of people. He came for all people. Anyone who would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, has access to them, him, and you see this in the story of these men. But I wanna jump in to the moment when they arrive to see Jesus, and I want us to see their response to Jesus, but more importantly, their gifts to Jesus, because when we understand the gifts that they bring to Jesus, I think we understand who Jesus is in our own life and what he demands of us as well, amen? Here we go. Chapter two, verse 11, if you're there, say the Bible is true. It says, in going into the house, not the stable, not the cave, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and listen to this, the response, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Verse 12, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by their own way. I wanna talk about uh, the meaning of the gift this morning. Uh, how many of you are gonna give a gift away at Christmas? Raise your hand if that's you, all right? How many of you plan to receive at least one gift during the holiday season, all right? Raise your hand. All right, so when, when we give gifts and we receive gifts, oftentimes gifts are, are an expression of our love for the person we're giving the gift to, right? And so a lot of times, if you're a good gift giver, you're gonna think about the gift of what they would love to receive and what would mean something to them, right? And so a good gift giver is not just gonna go, I gotta get a gift, I'm gonna pick up something at random, wrap it up, hope they like it, it really doesn't matter. They got the gift, that's all that matters. No, what, what matters in the gift giving is, is that we wanna communicate, I know you and you're special to me, right? How many of you ever received a gift that you opened up and you were like, holy cow, I have no idea what to do with this? Anybody ever have a gift like that? I remember as a kid, my parents, we'd go to the Christmas family Christmas thing and my, my, kids, my parents would always tell us kids as we were traveling over there, it was like, I don't care what it is, you act like it's the greatest gift you've ever received, all right? So they were teaching us to lie at a very early age. And because uh, here, here's the thing, nothing is more disappointing that for a 10-year-old kid than to open up a package of socks. Like, there's nothing more embarrassing than a 10-year-old kid to open up a package of underwear in front of the family. I'll just be honest with you. 
And so there were times we'd go to, you know, our grandmother's house and we would open up the gift. It was like, socks again. Like, this is amazing. The whole time parents were like, you better have respond like that. But here's the question we gotta ask. As we look at the gifts that Jesus receives from these men who traveled far distance with the hopes of seeing the king of the universe, what is it that their gifts are communicating? And how does it help us understand who Jesus is and what he wants to do in our life? That's what I wanna look at. So I want us to write three things down. First thing is this, I want us to see the gold And I want us to see the meaning of the gold. The gold is a declaration. The gold is a declaration that Jesus is king. It's a declaration that Jesus is king. Gold has always been very valuable. In fact, you know, we see this in our own economy today and throughout history, you see that um, uh, gold has always been precious and valuable in the economy uh, of different civilizations. In fact, pure gold is, is very rare and, and very hard to come by. And in this particular day, the common person would not be in the possession of gold. And, and the type of precious metals that you were in the possession of were really dependent upon the economic class. And really, if you look at it, only the wealthy of the wealthiest and typically those of royalty would be the ones who would possess pure gold. Palaces would be decorated in gold. You see, um, um, the, the, the king kingdoms through the years, gold was prominent. And so as these men approach the, 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 the house where Jesus was, they bring to him this first gift of gold. Now think about this, the peasant couple, Mary and Joseph, very poor, very few possessions. Imagine, you know, this is a, a, a kind of a baby shower for baby Jesus. And imagine their eyes lighting up when this poor couple receives this gift to their baby and they find gold, this precious, precious metal and the value. And here's the question we've got to ask. What are these men saying about Jesus? Well, first of all, they're saying that Jesus is the long-awaited king. This is a declaration. They believe that Jesus is a king. What is gold? Gold is the precious metal that kings possess, and they are giving a king what he deserves. Now, this infinite value, this this high price, this this value that gold would have, as they come before Jesus, they are saying, "You're, you're, you're the king, and we're acknowledging this, and we're giving you a very valuable possession as a way of declaring your worth and your infinite value. I think it's important that we understand this declaration because this declaration of gold comes on the heels of a phrase. Now notice the phrase here in verse 11 again. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and then listened to the response and they fell down and they worshiped him. Here's a question. What is the appropriate posture when you come before your king, the appropriate posture is this, of bowing down, of humbling yourself, of getting low as a way of acknowledging the exalted position, but this is not just an ordinary king. They fell down before him, and then it says, and they worshiped him. This worship of Jesus is not acknowledging him as just an ordinary king. In fact, if you read back into the story in chapter two, here's something you see that they understand, that this is the king of the Jews, the one prophesied about. 
And if you look in the Old Testament, you recognize that the king that God is sending is not just a king, he is the king of kings. And he is gonna usher in a kingdom that all nations and all tribes and all tongues will bow down and exalt him as the king of the universe. These men coming before Jesus, laying this gift of gold before him, bowing themselves and worshiping is saying, we understand who you are and we are assuming the posture and we are bringing the gift to recognize this. We're offering you our most prized possession, our most valuable gift we're laying before you. I think it's interesting that Matthew is the only gospel writer who, in, who, who includes these men in the narrative of Jesus' arrival. You say, why is that significant? It's significant because no other gospel writer puts more emphasis on the kingdom of God and the king of the kingdom like Matthew does. I mean, my, Matthew is wanting us to see in an unmistakable way, when Jesus showed up, the kingdom of God arrived. Why did the kingdom of God arrive? Because the king is here. He is on the scene. In the very beginning of the story of the life of Jesus, you see these unusual characters that we don't know a whole lot about declaring that they understand who Jesus is. So here's the heart question for you this morning. Is Jesus your king? Is Jesus your king? Now, I know in the room, because we're in church and we just worshiped and this is what you're supposed to do, we nod our head and we go, oh yeah, Jesus is king. No, 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 that's not what I ask. Is Jesus your king? Is Jesus your king? So how do we know if he's our king? What's the posture of your life before him? Like these men come in, they fell down and they worshiped. They offered this most valuable possession, acknowledging his infinite worth, that we're giving you our very best, our everything. We're giving you ourselves. See, when we answer the question, is Jesus our king, we've got to ask ourselves the question, are we living in a posture of full submission and surrender to him? Are we living our lives in a way that acknowledges his role in our life, that he is the one calling the shots? So just let me help you in the house this morning. If Jesus is not the one calling the shots in your life, you might say that he is king, but you're not living as if he is. We like the concept of Jesus being king, but what we're reminded of here, the posture of these men before Jesus, listen, this is the posture that Jesus not just demands of us, he deserves from us, amen? That's gold. Here's the second one, frankincense. What is frankincense? Frankincense is an affirmation that Jesus is our great high priest, it's an affirmation that Jesus is our great high priest. Uh, frankincense was an incense that was used for a lot of different reasons, but one of the primary functions that it was used for is in the temple worship that the priest, uh, what is a priest? A priest is the go-between. A priest is the mediator between God and man. And the priest would go in, and first of all, they would be consecrated and anointed oftentimes with incense, and a part of the incense mixture many times was frankincense. 
But they would also go in to offer sacrifices and they would burn incense on the altar. And frankincense and and other oils would be burned and they would uh, release a fragrant aroma that were expressions of worship to God. And the priests would go in and they would offer these sacrifices. And so I really believe that the reason that these men are bringing frankincense to Jesus is this is just showing us and affirming to us that now we have a high priest who's gonna come in and offer sacrifices to God on our behalf. That he's the great high priest, not just a priest. So the priest had a responsibility. The priest's job was to be a go-between, to be a mediator between God and man. Their job was to hear his voice. Their job was to pray on behalf of the people. Their job was to make sacrifices Their job was to seek forgiveness of the people. So the priest would go into the presence of God and they would offer sacrifices and they would offer incense to the Lord. And this was an expression of worship as they interceded on behalf of God's people. And here's what we have to understand about King Jesus. And this is so beautiful. King Jesus is the great high priest. That Jesus has come to be the mediator between God and man. He's the go-between. So how does sinful man have relationship with an infinitely holy God, a God of perfection, a God of righteousness? How do we bridge the gap between God's perfection and our sinfulness? Here's what we need. We need a mediator. We need someone to take the hand of God and someone to take the hand of man and to be the one that bridges the gap. Jesus is the great high priest who has come to offer a sacrifice so that the chasm between man and God might be eliminated through the mediation of the sacrifice that Jesus would offer. This is what he came to do. Hebrews chapter four, listen to this. It says this about the life of Jesus. Verse 14, it says, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Listen to verse Number 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Think about this for a minute. It's because Jesus is the great high priest who has offered a better sacrifice, which we're gonna see in a moment. We now have access into the presence of God. I love this. It says that he entered into the presence of God, not in the temple, but our priest went straight into the throne room of God. And he is the great mediator. This is why it is so important that we celebrate Christmas because this is a celebration of what's called the incarnation. What does that mean? It means that God put on skin. The eternal God of the universe, Jesus, who has lived forever, We can't wrap our mind around this, but even though he has always existed, Jesus willingly chose to clothe himself in humanity, born of a virgin, stepping into this life, into the brokenness that sin has created, and he himself lived the life that we couldn't live. He experienced the pain 
that we have all experienced because of sin. Jesus walked this life, but he did so with perfection, with with complete righteousness, which has made him worthy to be not just a priest, but the great high priest. See, all of the priests of the Old Testament, they had to first consecrate themselves because of their own sin, preparing themselves, and they would offer a type of sacrifice as a substitute, but it was insufficient. Why? Because both the the person offering the sacrifice and the sacrifice itself was not sufficient. But we have, according to Hebrews, a great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Because he lived among us, except here's the difference. Unlike us, he's without sin, which makes Jesus not just a priest, but the great high priest who now can step in. Why? And offer a better sacrifice because we have a, 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 we have a priest who's offering a sacrifice who is perfect, who doesn't have to be consecrated. He already is because of his perfection. And he now offers a greater sacrifice. Church, eyes right here just for a second. We gotta remember this. Jesus is the only mediator between humanity and our creator. He is the only one that can bridge the gap. It doesn't matter what philosophy says. It doesn't matter what religions say. It doesn't matter what popular opinion says. Jesus Christ is the only mediator between humanity and our creator. He is the only one who is able to step into our place and offer the sacrifice that we could not offer in and of ourselves. Are you thankful for that? Frankincense. Jesus, the great high priest, that leads us to myrrh, which helps us understand what type of sacrifice the great high priest is gonna offer. Listen to this. Write this down if you're taking notes. Myrrh points to Jesus as the final sacrifice. Myrrh points to Jesus as the final sacrifice. Like, like frankincense, myrrh was, a, um, was an incense. It was a... Uh, a fragrance that was used for a lot of different purposes. That it was a beauty treatment, uh, used as, as kind of a perfume. Uh, if you look in Esther, Esther um, uh, took some time of preparing herself to go see the king, and she used myrrh as a part of the preparation. We see in Psalm 45 that kings would often put myrrh on their garments, use the perfume. It was used as a pain relief. Oftentimes, myrrh was used to numb areas that were uh, hurting. But by the time you get to Jesus's day, myrrh had a predominant use and a way that it was used that was more common than, every, every, uh, than everything else. In fact, the Egyptians created kind of this system of embalming. They would use it in there when they're uh, mummifying a dead body. They would use myrrh as a part of the process. And so by the time you get to Jesus's day, this was the common practice. Here's what they would do. They would take a, a dead body and they would wrap it in linen and then they would coat it with myrrh and other spices, and they would wrap it some more and coat it with myrrh, and wrap it some more and coat it with myrrh, and do this over and over and over again as a way of preserving the body as it decayed. This was the common practice. In fact, we know this, if you would, just read, if you would, on the screen here in John chapter 19, you see this at the death of Jesus. Listen to this, Nicodemus also, who had uh, earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing, listen to this, a mixture of myrrh and aloes. 
about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen cloths and the spices as the burial custom of the Jews. You see this? It was the burial custom of the Jews to take myrrh and use it as a way of embalming or preserving a body that has uh, died and is decaying. Now, eyes right here just a second. I want you to get the picture of this. Uh, Christmas unfiltered. Now, Jesus is probably about two before he gets his baby shower. So toddler Jesus is there, probably riding on Mary's hip. And these strangers show up and they're worshiping him and they're bringing gifts. So imagine, you know, you open up the first gift and what is it? It's gold, right? And you're like, okay, we've hit the jackpot here. And if you're the giver of gold, you're like, who's, who brought the gold to the party? Imagine that the other raising their hand and they're like, that's me, I brought the gold. And all of a sudden they open up frankincense. Oh my goodness, this, this fragrant aroma, this, this unbelievably expensive incense. You, who brought the frankincense? I gotta say thank you to them. And all of a sudden I'm in the back of the room like, that's me, I brought the frankincense. Now you get to the last gift. I'm gonna put it in perspective here. She un- opens it up, toddler Jesus on her hip, and she opens up a bottle of formaldehyde. That's in essence what the gift was. Something we would use to prepare a body for burial. Or maybe we can just even use another metaphor here. They open it up and they're like, hey, what, what's the third gift? The third gift is a burial plot at the local cemetery. Happy birthday, Jesus. Now who's claiming that gift? Like the air leaves the room and all of a sudden they're going, wait a second, why in the world would you bring a gift for death to a baby shower. It's because the myrrh is pointing us to the sacrifice that Jesus would make on behalf of humanity. Uh, Christmas unfiltered, think about Mary in this moment. All of a sudden, the joy of the gold and the frankincense, there came the harsh reality of the destiny of her child. The child that she's holding on her hip she will one day see on a cross. And Jesus would give his life for the sins of the world. This baby would die for the sins of his mother and his earthly father and the rest of mankind. There's a message in the gift, amen? that Jesus had a very clear purpose, even from the very beginning. This baby was born to die. He was born to go to a cross. He was born to sacrifice himself on behalf of humanity. And here it is right there at his baby shower, we're being reminded of his future. And the future of this baby would be the hope of all of humanity that what he would offer of himself as the great high priest. Now, this is the difference between Jesus and every other priest before him. See, every priest would go in and they would consecrate themselves because they were sinful. And they would walk into an earthly man-made temple into a representation of the presence of God. And they would offer sacrifices first for themselves and then on behalf of the people. And then every year they had to repeat these sacrifices over and over and over again because the sacrificer, the one making the sacrifice, and the sacrifice was insufficient, but Jesus is a different high priest. 
Jesus doesn't step into a building made by man representing the presence of God. He steps right into the throne room of God and he offers himself as the spotless lamb. He doesn't bring the blood of bulls or goats or rams or any such thing. He brings himself and lays himself down and says, there is a sacrifice now that can be offered that once and for all can atone the sins of humanity and he'll put it into every other sacrifice because this is the only one finally that is sufficient enough to pay the price for all of people. Jesus lays himself. This is why his cousin John, who's just a few months older than him, this is the baby that leapt inside Elizabeth, his mother, when pregnant Mary came into his presence because even in the womb, John knew his cousin Jesus was different. We finally see this moment where John and Jesus come face to face right before Jesus starts his earthly ministry. And what is John's description of his cousin Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John was not the first one to make that declaration. There were a few wise men at the side of Jesus who in their own words said, we know why he's here. Behold, the Lamb of God who will give his life for his people. I don't know about you, but that grabs me. And it does something in my heart. To think about what Jesus came to do, the price that he would pay our king our great high priest, the one who has made the final sacrifice. And I want you to wrap your mind around this this morning. God in his infinite grace and his mercy and love have said, your sin has a price, it separates you from me. The kingdom of God has been fractured, but to have hope in this, that one day a baby's gonna be born and it's not gonna be an ordinary baby. He will be the king of the universe, but not only is he gonna be a king, he's gonna be a great high priest, but not just any high priest, he's gonna be the final high priest that you need to offer the greatest sacrifice, the one that's gonna reconcile the relationship once and for all. So think about this. God himself, the king of the universe, dies on behalf of humanity so that we might have life in him. And I'm just telling you, if that doesn't stir in you this desire to worship him, I would say this to you, you might not know him. This doesn't do something inside of you say, look, I wanna know him. And I want to love him and I want to respond and surrender to him. Listen, then I would encourage you to ask the question, do you even have a relationship at all with him? Let me see the gold, the frankincense, the myrrh reminds us of what our king would do for us. How do we respond to this? Let me give you a couple of ways you respond. Write this down. I'm just going to give these to you. And then we're going to remember through the Lord's Supper How do we respond to this? First of all, we submit to him as our king. We submit to him as our king. What does that mean? It means you relinquish, we relinquish our rights and we live in full surrender. This is how we respond to this gift. We submit to him as our king. Here's number two. We embrace him as our priest, as our mediator. It is through him and him alone that we have access to relationship with God. By the way, do you know that that's why we pray in Jesus' name, amen? Like, have you thought about that? Like the tagline of every prayer? 
Yada, 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 yada. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, y'all know church lingo, right? Why do we say that? Is it the salutation? Is it like write a letter to my wife and love Todd? Is, that the, is it just a salutation for me to go, okay, end of letter, end of conversation. And, you know, we talk to my kids on the phone. I always end the conversation with something effective. Hey, hey, love you, baby girl. Love you, son. What is that? Conversation's over. Enough said. Moving on. That's not why we say in Jesus. You know why we say in Jesus' name, Amen. It's because we're recognizing that our access to communing with God is not given to us by our rights and our merit and our own goodness. Our right to access the presence of God and commune with him is what? It's in the name of Jesus. That's why we pray that. We go to him and we make our petition and we make our request and we offer thanksgiving and we give gratitude to him and we have conversations with him and then we remember, I have this privilege of coming before you and making these, uh, these, these requests and offering these phrases of praise and worship and I wanna remember that I'm not doing this because of me. I only have this right because of the name of Jesus. What does amen mean? It means let it be. Let it be. So what do we pray? We're remembering that Jesus is our great high priest when we pray in Jesus' name. We're saying on the basis of what he has done, let it be according to his will. That'll change the way you pray, amen? Here's number three. We must rest in him as our sacrifice. Jesus' death has paid the price for our sin. So I want you to look at me for a second. Eyes right here, lock in. This will be the most important thing probably you'll hear all day long. Jesus' word over you, if you are in Christ, is this. His word for you is paid in full. Paid in full. What about that thought thing that I had last week and I didn't control it, paid in full? What about the decision I made three years ago? Oh yeah, that's paid in full. You didn't know me when I was a teenager. Yeah, I did. Paid in full. I don't treat my spouse right. Yeah, you need to repent of that. But that's paid in full as well. That's the stamp that Jesus has placed over your heart. You know what that means we can do? It doesn't mean we have license to sin. It means we can exhale in grace. And I can then draw near to him going, God, I need your power and I need your strength and I need your holiness and I can't on my own but I'm thankful that I can come confidently before your throne as my priest and my king on the basis of the fact that you paid it all, paid in full, and so I'm coming to you. You see, when you rest in the sacrifice of Jesus, the sacrifice doesn't stir you toward more sinning. It drives you toward deeper holiness. 
because you're resting in the finished work of Jesus. I'll end with this. There's a song that we love to sing for years. Uh, we've sung it here. It's called, You Are My King. Some of y'all know the song as Amazing Love, and the story behind the song is this. The songwriter said this is what inspired him to write it. He said, through history, you hear stories, beautiful stories, romantic stories of great kingdoms with great kings, and those great kings were loved by the people. And they were so loved by the people that whenever an invading army would come to attack the kingdom, that the people with pride and love for their country and love for their king, they would leave the kingdom and they would go to the battlefield and they would, with, with, with passion, they would fight on behalf of their king and they would suffer and they would die because they were devoted to their king and they loved their king so much. And you say, but there's only one story. about a king who loved his people so much that when the invading army came, he did not ask his people to go and fight on their behalf. He left his kingdom. And all by himself faced the enemy and died on behalf of his people so his people could live. There's only one story of one king who's ever loved like that, and that is King Jesus. Our great high priest has offered the great sacrifice so that his people and his kingdom might be established forevermore. And that's why the songwriter writes what he writes in the song. He says, I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted, you were condemned. I'm alive and well, and your spirit lives in me because you died and you rose again. How do you respond to that? Amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, would die for me? Amazing love, I know it's true. And it's my joy to honor you. And all I do, I honor you. That's the gift that Jesus wants to give us to give him at Christmas. It is to respond to him as our king, our priest, and our sacrifice. So here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna ask you in a moment, we're gonna stand and respond, and then we're going to receive the bread and the cup of communion. And here's what we're gonna do. When we take the bread, we are remembering he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement that brought us peace with God were upon him. And by his stripes, we have been healed spiritually and reconciled. And then we're gonna take the cup and we're gonna remember without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. But our king shed his blood for us so that our sins can be atoned for. And we're gonna take and we're gonna remember this. And we're gonna ask God to use this bread and this cup to prepare our hearts. We celebrate Jesus this weekend. Next Sunday, we remember who he is and what he came to do. 
So here's the two ways we respond before we take communion. Number one, if you don't know Jesus, come to know him today. Trust him as your Lord and Savior. Like if you know, like I don't know that I have a relationship with him. You know, I, I, I'm not certain if I have a relationship with him. Settle it today. Just confess your sin. God, I need a Savior and I believe Jesus is it. I believe he died. I believe he's, he's alive. And I believe that he's my only hope. In your words, confess that. Come and take the hand of one of our decision encouragers and let them know, hey, today I'm trusting Jesus. The second way we respond is in preparation. Before we dare take our hand and touch the bread or take of the cup, we need to make sure that whatever sin we have been comfortable with, that we don't make a mockery of the sacrifice that Jesus has made. That we actually confess and we repent and we deal with it. And then we remember that we can rest. That's our response. I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to pray over us. And when I say amen, our decision encouragers are going to be available. This altar is going to be open. Please do not just stand and just go through the motions. This is a significant act of worship. And it demands preparation. Father, I ask in the name of Jesus that you will do in this place what you desire. There are people that need to to submit to you as Lord and Savior. Give them the courage to leave their seat, come to a prayer partner, and tell them they need to trust God. Give Give the power to do that. For the rest of us, our hearts need to be prepared. Let your Holy Spirit lead us into surrender and repentance. In Jesus' name.